um, what we observe over time as the, the attention gets much more subtle is we observe not only what is happening in the moment, but how we are relating to it. You know, whether we're clinging to it, we're condemning it, we're clutching it in some way, we're overriding it, anticipating what's going to come next, we're shrinking away from it or withholding from it. And in some way, I think you probably intuitively picked up some energetic process where you were relating to what was going on with a lack of surrender and, and came forward to open into surrender by saying that. It doesn't always work. You know, one may um, need to try several things to change one's relationship to what's going on. You know, but that, I think, is in itself a fine process. May it continue to work, <laughs> but if it doesn't, don't worry. Really, you know, it, it is just understanding our relationship to what's going on, and uh, almost in a light-hearted way, trying different approaches to change that relationship. Yeah. A lot of truth in that. I wouldn't go so far as to say we're not caring so much about <laughs> the other person's happiness, perhaps. But yeah, no, it is. It is a purification process. You know, it is um, liberating the mind from the habitual forces of grasping aversion and um, those habitual reactions of fear, impatience, uh, things like that. You know, because as the force of the Brahma Viharas grows, um, those other forces will be less habitual. They'll be less dominant. So even though they may still arise, they are no longer the overriding experience we have as we move through the world. And so it is done for one's own purification, for one's own liberation from those forces. That's not to say it has no effect on the outside world, because it very well may. But we can certainly see the effect within ourselves. How you phrase the equanimity is really up to you. You know, um, I did it last night the way I did it in Burma. And there is a certain element where I think we're both speaking to ourselves and to others. You know, so however you find uh, comfort in that balance, you know. Yeah, resonates with your understanding, you know, and just feel free to do that. Distinguish between the pleasantness and unpleasantness and the reaction. Well, if you get a, um, if you come into a period, I think, where there's very keen awareness at any given time, and you really just sit back and watch the process as it unfolds, sometimes you find very interesting things. You know, um, 
you may find that there's a sensation in the body. There's a feeling tone to that sensation. There's an interpretation of that sensation leading to a new feeling tone, leading to a reaction. For example, sometimes um, when the force that we call rapture is very strong, the body will start to rock or shake. And the feeling of it might be very pleasant. You know, once there's an interpretation, oh, everybody in the hall is looking at me, you know, or I really look like a fool, then the experience becomes quite unpleasant, even though the original feeling tone just of the movement might have been pleasant. And so it's just watching over time, you know, to see this. No, I think there's a quality of perception, you know, that uh, to some degree affects what's going on. But it's not to say that, you know, when the Buddha had backaches, he didn't find it mildly unpleasant. I don't know, you know, but uh, we do, um, according to the teachings, you know, make an assumption that he didn't feel a lot of aversion towards that, even if he felt the unpleasantness. Well, you should look, you know, as, just as um, kind of quietly as you can, because it's interesting. You know, and see what's what's actually creating the conditions for that aversion. You know, is it the actual experience? Is it the interpretation of the experience as being bad or wrong? Is it the context in which it's happening? You know, that um, you have the feeling you're the only one in the hall, you know, feeling pain. You know, what, whatever's going on to feed into that. Maybe it's just the experience. There are neutral experiences, but we, um, again, according to the teachings, they're often, exp- because they are the absence of pain, <laughs> they're experienced as somewhat pleasant. You know, so. <laughs> okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. The different meanings of the word Dhamma. Um, um, I can talk about it a little bit. Uh, one meaning is the truth, the way things are. And that we experience in our practice when we tune in to what's going on in the body, in the mind. And in that sense, it reveals a second meaning of the Dhamma in that every experience of the mind or the body is called a Dhamma. The Buddha taught in such a way as to reveal what the truth is, taught in such a way so that beings could look to their experience of the Dhamma, to see the Dhamma. And so the Buddha's teaching is called the Dhamma. So those are the three different meanings or three different areas of 
meaning for the word Dhamma. And the second question is, um, what is Stephen's and told a story about <clears throat> a woman who pushed this, her recently made husband, I think, huh? Mm -hmm. Her husband over the cliff because he was trying to rob her and etc., etc. And does that, and the gods were happy. And does that mean that the gods don't know the law of karma? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I really don't know. And I can't remember if I was ever a god to know the, the law of karma. I have to wait and see. <laughs> In the whole realms of existence, the 31 planes of existence, there are only a few realms, in fact, where beings are born uh, from conception in a womb. And in fact, most planes of existence, beings are spontaneously created. And so it's not a sexual union that produces the materiality for the rebirth. And in the Buddhist understanding of even rebirth in the human realm, it's not so much sex as the karma to become again that is the cause for rebirth. The union of egg and sperm, or however you want to understand it, is a condition for birth in the human realm. But it's not the only condition. And even with that, if there was no being to inhabit that, it wouldn't happen. Buddhist understanding. You tell me what, no, what's your experience looking at snowflakes? Yesterday, snowing, wonderful, beautiful. Looking at some snowflakes, what was your experience? What I was looking at was some, some, some of, like Michelle was talking about, was the, the shape of the snowflake, the beauty of the snowflake, the delicacy. But it was about, it seemed to be about the snowflake, it didn't seem to be about me. Were you angry? No. Were you happy? 
Curious? Curious. Was there a sense of uh, fascination and enjoyment? Was there some clarity in seeing visually what you were seeing? That's, that's what I would get at. If I kept eliciting out of you further details about your experience, you would see that you were very mindful, but slightly caught up in the conceptual world of snowflake. And so there was a mixing of conceptual understanding and direct experience. Good concentration, weak insight. Okay? So with a further refining of knowing what you were experiencing at the time you were experiencing it. And this doesn't preclude looking at the snowflake. It merely means that you are recognizing the quality of mind, the fact of seeing, the sequence of reflective consideration about that snowflake, etc. Just in recognizing each of those things as it happens, good insight, good concentration, and it doesn't destroy the experience of really getting into a snowflake. It's just a further understanding, a deeper understanding of what that experience really is. Not from thinking, but from that heightened sense of recognition, what's going on now. Yeah, good. Yes, in fact, I mean, in fact, that's a really balanced mind, the, the balanced mind that can be with the experience and know it and not lost in the conceptual understanding of it. Understanding both the conceptual world and the, we'll call the absolute experience world of every moment. And it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. We can, you know, in our normal life, we live in the conceptual world predominantly. Sometimes in retreat, we get into the absolute world predominantly and can get quite lost in, you know, the nuts and bolts of this moment's experiences and forget, you know, what's, what's this for? You know? It's to tell time. But... You know, seeing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> well, when the mind is more in balance and the effort is more effortless, or the energy is more effortless, uh, then there's an easy acknowledgement of both. And the mind really comes into balance and real equanimous balance. experience of unity fit in with that? 
What do you mean the experience of unity? In with what? With, with everything. With, if you're looking at the snowflake, <clears throat> but somehow not aware that you're happy or that you're seeing a crystallized form when you are just so present with it that mm. you're not different from it. It sounds like you might be talking about some sort of absorption in, merging with that experience, which can be very concentrating, merging with um, a sight in this case, or sometimes merging with sound, you know, listening to sound and just becoming the sound, getting totally carried away, totally lost in a sight or sound. That type of merging, good concentration, not insight. Because there's not the recognition of what it is and its momentariness. And the direct, it's like the direct experience of the concentrated mind, the direct experience is access into some place, some perfection, some unity, some Something that we've all experienced, you know, that, that union, that complete absorption, lostness in something. And we get an access into it, and then it is a world unto itself. And you can live in that concept for a long period of time. And this is what development of jhana is, through using visualizations of sounds. You access into the very refined mental, mentally perfect image of that actual external object and you get lost in it, in the mental perfection, that mental sign of the external object, whether it's sound or sight or whatever. And mentally, it can be perfect and just absolutely still and peaceful and just radiant, luminous, all those qualities of the mind. And depending on your amount of concentration, you can sustain that mental image, that nimitta, that sign, for extended periods of time, hours, days, and just never come back to anicca, anatta, dukkha. (laughs) For a while. For a while. Is that what you were asking about? <laughs> I don't. It's somewhere around there, yeah. something like that. The interesting thing is though, that what you're saying sounds um, the word "lost" in it seems incorrect. I mean, is there a possibility to not be lost and yet not noting and all of that? What's your experience? Okay. It's not more of what maybe I don't know what Kundaji or Nisargadatta what they were talking about. It feels like that's another way of being present, and the way you're speaking about it, it feels like it's 
one place and it's wonderful and when we get it together we'll move into mm. wisdom. It feels like that's it. It feels like it's not wise. There are many different types of wisdom or knowledge, insight being one of them, but insight being the wisdom or the knowledge that leads to freedom. There's a lot of other kinds or realms of knowledge that do not lead to freedom. And we can spend lifetimes, in fact, we probably have spent lifetimes fascinated by this knowledge. And we're still here. Insight leads to the understanding of mind that frees the mind from its becoming and continued existence. So that's not, that's not to say that there isn't other kinds of knowledge. There is lots, lots. Nine o'clock. There's a couple of more days of interviews and a couple more days beyond that of silence. The tendency, of course, is to get really pretty, to think that Monday's here already. Please, there's some people that really have only come for a shorter period of time, and some of you who've been here for three months that want to remain diligently in practice and silence until formal opening of talking on Monday. So please. Um, respect people's sincere motivation to to practice and avoid, you know, communication, whether it's by note or talking or eye contact or and just, you know, as I asked Michelle, contain your joy for <laughs> a couple of more days and just be with it. Okay, have a good day. Do you discuss forgiveness practice in connection with metta? And the other one is, suppose you had an hour or 40 minutes a day to practice Brahma hard. How would you suggest doing that in combination or singly? I'll do the second question first. If you had an hour or 45 minutes a day um, to do the Brahma Viharas, how would you do it? Do you mean alongside of the Vipassana practice or just, okay. Um, I think that it's important to do, you know, an ex- experiments and see what works best for you. So some people like to do a whole sitting, you know, daily practice, like in metta or compassion or mudita or equanimity. And then the next sitting, do in a day, do Vipassana, then another sitting, a Brahma Vihara, or some people might take a week in their daily practice to do Brahma Vihara and then the next week Vipassana. Or, you know, some people might do 10 minutes or 15 minutes of a sitting. And I think it really depends on uh, you, you know, how it feels and what works best. Do you ever try like all four in one sitting, 15 minutes? Did you hear that?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.